the church. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And Amos, the sound sounds awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Josh, Jeff, great job today with musical worship. Josh, Jeff, great job. Uh, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 43 to 52. Verses 43 to 52. It reads, And immediately, while he was still speaking... That is Jesus, right? You guys know the context. We're still in the Garden of Gethsemane right here, yeah? Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth, about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And so if you're new to our church, we've been um, looking at the life of Jesus from um, the biography written by a scribe named Mark. And this week we are at the point um, where we're still in Passion Week and we're looking at Jesus' betrayal. And so pray with me and we'll circle back to the text and walk through it line by line and see what we can learn from it. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much. You are alive. You're not only alive, but you are actively involved in all of our lives, wherever we are. And so, as we pray collectively as a church here in San Diego, we want to pray for the Jacks. We ask that you would bring about comfort and encouragement in a supernatural way and that you would begin to show them the many ways you've started to fulfill your calling for them in Indonesia. Father, we pray for our time here as we look at this passage, as we look at this intense um, and heartbreaking story of how Jesus was betrayed by Judas. God, there's so many lessons we can learn, and there's so many things I'm going to point out, but I can only do enough. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts 
and that you would help us know. Help us know how to grow in our love for Jesus and be empowered to live our lives for him. In his name we pray, amen. In life, we experience many painful things, but not many are as painful as betrayal. Betrayal is an extremely painful thing. Whether it's the husband or wife who ends up being unfaithful to their spouse, whether it's um, um, the businessman who um, ends up taking the ideas or or concepts of another business person and using it for themselves, no matter um, the the level or, or intensity of the betrayal, it's a painful thing to be betrayed. To be stabbed in the back by someone close to you is something we've all experienced. And an experience we all agree is extremely painful. And so the question is, how should we respond? How should we respond when we're wronged? And where can we find the power to forgive and respond with love? It's 33 BC in the city of Jerusalem. And we find Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. There were no street lights in the ancient world, no buildings giving light. So when the sun went down, it got really, really dark. And this dark night is about to get even darker. It was to be one of the murkiest nights and murky. I got it from Lion King. Scar, be prepared. Sorry, my kids have been watching it. I was like, murky? Oh, murkiest. It was to be one of the murkiest nights in human history. It's late at night, and while Jesus has spent most of the night in Gethsemane agonizing in prayer, his disciples have spent the better part of the night sleeping and unable to stay alert in prayer. And so, having spent most of the night agonizing in prayer, Jesus probably at this point looks thin, frail, and hungry. And so, as his eyes, thick with pain and sadness over his future suffering and death, one of his estranged disciples enters Gethsemane, possessed with an overwhelming desire to betray him. And what he was about to do would become one of the most famous events in human history and literature. From now on, a a sequence of violent events will lead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 43 again. It says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, 
Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Here, Judas is described as one of the twelve, okay? He's described as one of the twelve. One author says that the inclusion of this detail is to deepen the wound and, and sense of abandonment. And so Judas was one of 12 men Jesus handpicked to apprentice him while he was on earth. And so to Jesus, Judas was a very close friend. And now Judas is hell-bent on committing one of the most horrific and shocking betrayals in human history. Judas turned on a trusted friend just so he could bank 30 pieces of silver. Judas's betrayal is so devastating. Any discussion on the topic of betrayal often begins with Judas. It's an act that has become the symbol of disloyalty and betrayal. And so... As Jesus is in conversation with his disciples, a member of their tribe, Judas suddenly emerges out of thick darkness. And he's not alone. He's followed by a large crowd. And this crowd is a collection of soldiers, members of the police force, and representatives from the religious leaders. It's an entourage composed of well-trained and highly disciplined men. And there are hundreds of them, hundreds of them. And by the looks on their faces and the weapons they're holding and how they're walking, they're not here to argue. Okay, they're not here to argue with Jesus or anyone. They're moving towards Jesus as if they're a SWAT team on a mission to arrest a dangerous criminal and his gang and bring them into custody. Jesus and his disciples, right here, right now, are outnumbered and clearly outmatched. And so here comes Judas and his entourage, ready to betray and arrest Jesus. And so what was the plan uh, how was Judas going to uh, achieve this all, all right? Um, his strategy for betrayal is made known to us in verse 44. Look at verse 44. It says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, uh, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God." Right Here is kind of a flashback to when Judas was having his meeting with the religious leaders. And this is the flashback where he's outlining the plan to betray Jesus. He's kind of saying, hey guys, I'm going to identify Jesus with a kiss. And as soon as I do, I want you to grab him and arrest him and take him away. This wasn't something Judas was asked to do. It was something he chose to do. Look at verse 45. And when he came, he went up to him, that's Jesus, went up to Jesus, 
at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. So as readers, you know, in the modern world, we're very familiar with this story, okay? We know for sure Judas' intentions. We know all of his actions are a cover-up for his evil intentions. We know that. But if we were one of his disciples, if we were someone who was there at that time in this moment, we would never have guessed what Judas was doing had any malicious intents. We would never have guessed it. Why? Uh, we, We would never have guessed it. Why? And the reason is, first, he addresses Jesus with the title rabbi. Okay? He says, rabbi. In those days, this was a title disciples used to honor and respect their teachers. The second reason we wouldn't think this, his actions was evil in any way was because of the way he kissed Jesus. In the time of Jesus, this kind of kiss was the typical greeting of respect by a disciple for his rabbi. In fact, the Greek word that we get this term, kissed him, literally means kissed him much. And so the kiss wasn't this small, standoffish peck on the cheek, okay? It's likely that Judas walked up to Jesus, greeted him with a warm smile, gave him a big hug, and kissed him in a way that communicated nothing but love and respect, okay? It was a warm embrace and a warm kiss. And so from the outside, from our perspective, there was nothing about Judas' actions towards Jesus that seemed sinister or shady in any way. But we all know that the motive was pure evil. What he expressed was love outwardly, but internally his intentions were driven by hate. Betrayal is always a painful experience but when it comes with a kiss from a close friend it's even worse it's a deep and painful wound and some of you here have experienced the most severe and extreme form of betrayal That is from a friend, someone you loved and you thought loved you suddenly, stabs you in the back, turns on you, crazy form of betrayal. From here on, what's interesting is that nothing else is said about Judas. He betrays Jesus with a kiss and then he disappears off the pages of Mark's gospel. That was it. 
hear nothing else about Judas. So what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus? Thankfully, we have other versions of the story of Jesus. Matthew, um, in Matthew 27, verse 3 to 5, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to look at verses 3 to 5 to find out what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus. It says, this is what happened to him. It says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And so Judas is saying, is seeing that what he wanted to happen to Jesus, okay, fact that he's getting condemned, he's getting arrested, he's on trial, he's being pursued, all of that is happening. And then it says he changed his mind. And then what did he do? He took back the 30 pieces of silver and wanted to give it back to the religious leaders. Look at verse 4. And this is what he was saying. He was saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, the religious leader said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And so that's what happened to Judas after betraying. He regretted everything he had done. And ended up going and hanging himself. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 18, it kind of gives this graphic detail of what happened. Apparently his insides opened up and his bowels gashed out. Judas paid the ultimate price for his betrayal. He died a horrific and tragic death. And to this day... His name and legacy are always associated with negativity. People don't name their sons Judas. Okay? Should have gone online and typed this in in Instagram or Google. Uh, you know, uh, pro- there's probably some people called Judas, but like, like no one really knows a Judas. If you know a Judas and you meet them, you're like, oh my gosh. Like. <laughs> right? <laughs> And to this day, like, to call someone Judas may be one of the worst insults you could unleash on someone. And so that's his legacy. As soon as Judas identifies Jesus with the kiss, verse 46 lets us know that, lets us know. This is what verse 46 says. They laid hands on him and seized him. And so the plan's going, it's all going according to plan, okay? And as soon as Jesus was under arrest, guess what happens? Chaos and anarchy breaks out. Look at verse 47. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Right here, right now, someone acts to protect Jesus and in so doing, ends up cutting off the ear of the servant. 
this nameless person here is described as one of those who stood by. And so the question, who was this guy? Thankfully, the other Gospels help us here. In John's version of the Gospels, he's identified as Peter. We all know Peter. Peter is one of the most outspoken, kind of aggressive disciples of Jesus. Peter, like most Jewish men, had an idea or kind of were skilled on how to use a sword. And so when danger is levied against this rabbi, he doesn't hesitate, right? He doesn't hesitate. He reaches for his sword to protect his friend and beloved rabbi. And he may not have landed a fatal blow, but he did cut off an ear. And so many of you are thinking this, and every time I've read this, I've thought this. I'm like, how did he cut off this guy's ear? Okay, that's one question. The other question is, if he wanted to cut off this guy's, why would he go for an ear? An ear of all things. You're trying to land a fatal blow here and trying to do a Mike Tyson kind of thing. Sorry, Mike Tyson. I like Mike Tyson. The ear thing makes me think of Mike Tyson. And so the question is, why did Peter cut off the servant's ear? Why didn't he cut off his head or something? Bible scholars and history professors have asked the same question. And the only answer that makes sense is that he did try to land a fatal blow. That is kind of chopped the guy's head off, okay? But somehow he missed and instead got the ear. And this makes sense because if you think about it, okay, Peter tries to cut off this guy's ear, but he missed the target, tried to cut off this guy's head, but he missed the target because it seems like as he was swinging his sword, the guy leans back, Matrix style, okay, leans back, kind of tilts his head, right, and the sword comes, right, kind of skims his hair, chops off the guy's ear. It's kind of what happened, and you can imagine this scene right now. It's built to an overwhelming intensity. There's a man on the ground in pain, clutching his bloody ear, and everyone else, I'm sure, is like just frozen. Deer in headlights. Wow, <laughs> what just happened? It's intense. So the question is, what happens next? How does Jesus respond to this act of violence by one of his students? Again, Mark doesn't tell us, okay? But Matthew, in his version of the gospel, does. He tells us in Matthew 26 that Jesus looks at Peter and says, that's not the way to do it. That's not what we're about. While Peter chose a violent approach, Jesus preferred a nonviolent philosophy to hostility. We learn from New Testament literature that Jesus healed the man, right? Jesus went on and healed the man, and he does so to teach Peter and us that violence is not the way to do it. To teach us that as Christians, 
We do not fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. So this is how it makes sense to us. Christianity makes no advance by the sword. Anytime Christians have used violence and aggression to advance the gospel, whenever that happens, it cannot be, be, be viewed as Christianity. None of that is Christian. It may profess to be Christian, but it's not Christian. Kingdom advanced is achieved one soul at a time by faith in Jesus alone. Okay? This brings up so many questions. Okay? So many other questions. And you guys are going to discuss that in your community groups. Whatever calm there might have been up to this moment is all but gone. Each soldier right now frantically pulls out their sword, ready to fight. It's all out war, but before they start swinging, Jesus interrupts them. And look at verse 48 and 49. It says, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Verse 49, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus' question here shows that their actions do not make sense at all. Jesus is saying, hey, like, I've been public in my ministry. Okay? I've been out in the temple teaching people. Right, And you choose to try and capture me late at night secretly. It just doesn't make sense. Um, Jesus was not a rebel leader. He just was not. Sinclair Ferguson says that uh, words of violence had never crossed his lips. He had never used any of his influence or gifts for destructive purposes. And so, even though... Their plot to arrest him is actually unfounded. Jesus humbly submits to it. He does. And this point, and at this point, he is surrounded by bloodthirsty men and a wretched traitor. But the interesting thing is that Jesus remains in charge and in control. He's not panicked by the moment he's not freaking out he just remains super calm and super in control and the question is why because Jesus is submitting to a greater purpose that's why he ends with the following statement look at the end of verse 49 after saying like why are you coming after me what's the point of all of this he ends with, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus was submitting to a greater purpose. Jesus quotes this to remind them that God is in complete control of the situation and even his betrayal is the fulfillment of scripture and part of God's saving purpose. His invisible hand, God's invisible hand, has been and always will be orchestrating the events of history. Not just history, but your life 
personally. One author says it like this. God will accomplish his perfect plan despite and even through the evil actions of sinful human beings. He always has, and he will continue to do so. And so after a brief display of courage, Peter and the other disciples abandon Jesus. They flee, they run. They had all pledged their lives to him, but in this moment of need, they all flee the scene at the first sign of trouble, leaving Jesus to face his crisis alone. And so right now, Jesus is alone. So there are many lessons we can learn from the disciples' abandonment of Jesus. But one that I think is most helpful was um, brought up by um, a theologian called Mark Strauss. This is what he says. Listen to this, guys. He says, Many people are attracted to Christianity or come to church for social reasons or business opportunities. Others hope Christianity will meet their emotional needs or make their problems go away. Yet when temptations, difficulties, or hardships come, they decide it is not worth it and move on to another self-help fad. They are like the seed that falls on rocky ground in Jesus' parable who receive the word with joy but then fall away when trouble or persecution comes. Do you guys get that? That's crazy. So interesting in that we all have motives. We all have reasons why we decide to join a church or kind of explore Christianity. We all have motions, and absolutely, there's, there's good things in that. There's a Christian church that provides community and social things and all of these. And it's true, like, Christianity will help with your emotional needs and at times make your problems go away, absolutely. But if that becomes the primary or main reasons for exploring Jesus or committing and dedicating your life to Christianity, then you're going to be disappointed because I'm sure you would all agree with me it's when you become a Christian life doesn't get any easier does it there are challenges there are difficulties and there are hardships and the question is when that happens will you flee Will you disconnect from Jesus and his church community? May the primary reason you've decided to dedicate your life to Jesus and his way be because of God's grace and mercy and love through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. May Christ alone be your motivation for your involvement in church. Because Christ is the foundation. He's the constant. I will disappoint you. People in the church will disappoint you. Life will disappoint you. But the person that will remain faithful and never leave or forsake you 
is Jesus. And so as we come to an end, Mark closes his account of Jesus' arrest in the garden with a striking illustration of one man's lack of bravery. Look at this, guys, right? We read it, 51 and 52. Look at this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay, Mark Strauss, who's a professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary here in San Diego, says that this verse contains one of the strangest incidents, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but in the whole of the gospel tradition. And I'm sure you guys are thinking, what's happening here? There's this guy wearing a linen cloth. He runs away naked. What's happening? And so back in those days, they went to sleep kind of wearing this out, out, um, outfit, right? It was like a linen cloth. Most people who were wealthy slept in a linen cloth. And so what's happening here is that this young man probably lived close to the garden, okay, Gethsemane, where everything was going on. He hears all of this commotion going on. He wakes up in the middle of the night and he just leaves his house with his linen cloth. You're thinking, that is strange. Why didn't he put something over that? Think of the linen cloth as being kind of a robe, right, that you'd wear. Okay, you would wear that robe. It's like a robe. And <laughs> I was talking about it this morning with Jeffrey, uh, and he was like, it makes sense because every time something crazy or an incident happens at night and the news reporters go, they seem to always interview someone wearing a robe, right? <laughs> You've seen that. <laughs> Right, and they're just interviewing, and they're, and they're always like, "Yeah, I, you know, I was kind of asleep, and I heard all of this commotion, and I just grabbed my robe and came." This is kind of what's happening here. And the, this young man has arrived on the scene. He saw, heard everything that's going on, and then one of the soldiers sees him and goes, "What are you doing here?" Right? And the young man's like, oh, I don't know, I'm half asleep, and so he tries to run. One of the um, soldiers grab him and ends up grabbing his linen cloth and strips him naked. They say he had an undergarment kind of thing, underwear on, and the guy just runs off naked. And so the question was, who was this young man? Right? Some people have said it was Mark himself, who's the author of this gospel, um, and Mark is kind of inserting himself in this story remaining nameless as this kind of um, non-heroic guy, okay? And there's been other suggestions, maybe one of Jesus' disciples. Some said it was Lazarus. Um, but even though it may be helpful to know who it was, right, we must not lose focus of the exact reason this particular incident is included Although the identity of the young man remains a mystery, Mark's purpose in the passage is clear. To show the chaos that surrounded Jesus' arrest and the total abandonment of his followers. The point is this. Jesus is alone because what he's about to do 
no one can do with him. In other words, Jesus was alone as he submitted to the cross. Jesus went on from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross of Calvary, and at Calvary, he was crucified. And on the cross, this is what was happening. Every time you see a picture of Jesus on the cross, don't just look at it from kind of the the face value and what you can see. Think of what's really going on behind the scenes. And what's going on behind the scenes is that there's this great exchange going on. And what's happening is that Jesus is taking on and absorbing all of your sins all of the wicked evilness of this world and he's absorbing it all and taking and clothing ourselves with it so that God's wrath may be poured out onto him and because that is happening that provides us with forgiveness of sins and that provides us with an escape from God's wrath so that we may enter into a relationship with God. That's what's happening on the cross. And in so doing, Jesus restored our broken relationship with God. And the thing we have to do in response to all of this, if we're a Christian, every time we are reminded of the gospel, Every time we're reminded of what God done for us, may we pray that we just don't view it as this thing we know. May we pray that every time we are exposed to the gospel, we're exposed to who Jesus was and what he achieved for us, may we pray that God God takes that information and allows it to um, transition to our hearts and begin to change us and motivate us and impact the way we think and live. We cannot be... Christians that simply know the gospel intellectually. We want to pray that what we know transforms how we view God and how we live. And I'm speaking to myself. I'm a pastor. I study this every week. And I got to a point where I'm like, I know this but it's really not affecting me emotionally. It's it's really not affecting me the way I want it to. And so I want us to pray every time we look at the gospel, every time we're reminded of what Jesus done, that it truly changes our lives and it truly impacts the way we live. Jesus stood alone as savior because he alone was fit to bear the judgment of God in our lives place and so Jesus is not just a person we look to for forgiveness of sins and as the one who allowed us to enter into a relationship with God and as the one who is our righteousness before God Jesus is also our example in so many ways. And in this specific moment, Jesus is our example of 
how we can respond to betrayal. <laughs> betrayal is always a painful experience. It just, it, it's so painful. But when it comes from a close friend, it's even more painful. And so how Jesus helps us with that is by looking at how he responded when he was betrayed. He responded with love and he responded to a commitment to what God had called him to. And we know that because even though his disciples, even though Judas betrayed him and his disciples disowned him, he still remained faithful. He still went to the cross and died for them. He didn't say, oh, you guys flopped. He continued to remain faithful. And so, may we be inspired by Jesus, every single one of us, this morning. May we be inspired by Jesus to love those who betray and wrong us. And may we look to Jesus for power, for power to forgive and love those who have wronged us. Not for our fame, not so that people may look to us and think we're awesome, but for the glory and fame of God. Let's pray. God, oh, thank you for all of these reminders. Thank you, most of all, for helping me in a small way to exalt Jesus. And so I pray that your spirit begins to exalt Jesus in all of our hearts and minds. I pray that Jesus becomes the most satisfying and the most delightful and the most valuable person in our lives. We know what Jesus achieved. We know what he went through. But Father, we pray that that knowledge transitions from our head to our hearts and begins to change us for real. Begins to change how we view you, we grow in our love for you, begins to change how we relate to people around us, begins to change how we relate to people that betray us. It, it, it powerfully, in a supernatural way, everything about Jesus and what he's done, and as we meditate and reflect on him, impacts the way we live. God, we're crying out to you this morning for you to bring about your will and your purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.